as Monsignor Charles Murder, secretary of what used to be called the Holy Office, and a considerable Joyce scholar, might say, this is the Sunday within the octave of Bloomsday. Bloomsday, the anniversary of that pilgrimage of the imagination which has made the 16th day of June 1904 in the city of Dublin a day to be remembered by all the world. The record of the pilgrimage was, of course, given forth rather later, and in another city. Ulysses was published in Paris on the 2nd of February 1922, Joyce's 40th birthday. The book was an immediate sensation. Uh, it was attacked uh, very widely uh, by various uh, reviewers, and uh, in that notable literary organ, the Sporting Times, it was described as perverted lunatic, literature of the latrine, coarse salacity, enough to make a hot and hot sick. But, of course, Ulysses had many staunch and perceptive uh, defenders. T.S. Eliot hailed it as the most important expression which the present age has found, a book to which we are all indebted and from which we now cannot escape. He described Joyce's literary method as a way of controlling, of ordering, of giving shape and significance to the immense panorama of futility and anarchy in contemporary history. Edmund Wilson thought it a work of high genius, which has the effect at once of making everything else look brassy. An interesting point is that in spite of the howl of disapproval that arose from Ireland, uh, Two of the most perceptive of the earlier reviews were published in this country. A.J. Leventhal predicted in the Irish Statesman that Ulysses would carry away young writers on its irrepressible tide. He found it a human book filled with pity, expressing life from a new angle with a changed vision. P.S. O'Hegarty in The Separatist declared that Joyce had used the language as it has never before been used, and used it triumphantly. He stressed, with remarkable and prophetic shrewdness, the, uh, the Irishness of Joyce. Ireland is all through him, and in him, and of him, and Dublin, its streets and its buildings, and its people. He loves with the wholehearted affection of the artist. He may live out of Dublin, but he will never get away from it. W.B. Yeats thought Ulysses showed a cruel, playful mind, like a great soft tiger cat. But it was our Irish cruelty and our kind of strength. The book, he said, was more undoubtedly a work of genius than any prose written since the death of Singh. Yeats on Ulysses, as quoted by Neil Sheridan, who was a young man in Paris in the 30s, came to know Joyce and his family. I asked him... What were Joyce's own reactions to his critics and commentators? Well, Joyce, uh, when he spoke about it, uh, uh, about the early reviewers, some of them who, you know, had been taken over by the Homeric parallel and became very uh, academic about it, uh, he, he, he was rather bored and amused by them uh, and uh, said more than once to me, I wish to Christ uh, more of them had said it was a funny book. Hmm. Yes, uh, he did regard it as a work of the comic imagination. He, he did regard it as a, as, a, well, uh, as a masterpiece of the human spirit, uh, the human comic spirit. Yes, I, I think of the word comic because uh, this is the word he used uh, when, in, when he was expressing his appreciation of 
miles of uh, flannel brines uh, and swim two birds. Uh, that's right. You see, he, I think he, you see, he, he saw the vis comica as uh, the great energizing force in literature. Uh, and and he, he would never have thought of the book uh, uh, as being a solemn thing with a message or anything else. Uh, and and this, uh, you know, it, it came out in his conversation. Uh, and, of course, in his interest in the minutiae of Dublin life, it seems to me a thing that people have neglected, for instance, is that in Ulysses, uh, Stephen Dedalus fades out, has phased out of the book rather quickly, and the whole warmth of the book goes into Bloom, because Bloom represented a very large part of Joyce. This was the the really private part of Joyce, uh, and, and in the sense that, uh, for instance, Joyce himself, as a personality, as a person, might seem forbidding to, to many people, uh, but this was because he had to protect himself. A man of genius has to protect himself from casual, uh, foolish contacts, and uh, this uh, this was a manner, just as Yeats devised a manner to avoid this. But he was very far from being uh, lacking in warmth, and his love of Dublin was quite, you know, quite obsessive. And of course, his love of his father was an awfully interesting side too, because as he wrote to Elliot uh, shortly after this was published, you know, scores of pages and several characters have come out of my father's my my contact with my father, you know. It was, I take it, in Paris that you knew him. Yes, indeed. Uh, when I lived there, I, I knew uh, uh, the family well because he had known my father in the old Royal University. Uh, and uh, there were several interesting things uh, about uh, the family. Uh, Nora, whom he, to whom he was deeply devoted, was, I, I thought, the ideal uh, wife for uh, a man like Joyce, who was certainly the most cerebral uh, writer of our time. Uh, one American uh, scholar or, or critic uh, wondered why a man of Joyce's caliber would marry somebody like Nora. But to an Irish person, this didn't seem at all uh, uh, difficult because t- to, uh, to Joyce, Nora represented the Irish earth, to which she was very much devoted. She took a very uh, womanly ordinary, wifely attitude uh, towards him. Over the years, she frequently had said to him, he wrote quite a lot in bed with a board over his knees, and she frequently said to him, why don't you get up and do some work instead of sitting all day day there writing, you know? (laughs) And, uh, you know, there there was that, uh, it seemed to me, a very fruitful relationship. I don't think she ever got through Ulysses because the words were too long. But this didn't in the least diminish Joyce's respect and love for her. when I last saw him uh, was in May uh, 1939, at the end of May 1939. I'd gone to Paris on my honeymoon, and I brought with me the recently published uh, novel of Flann O'Brien's, That Swim Two Birds. And I remember it had an inscription on it uh, to James Joyce with lots of what's on page 305. And uh, Brian or Flann had underlined on page 305 a phrase, diffidence of the author. And Joyce loved the book very much. And afterwards, I have many letters from him uh, showing the efforts he made to get it noticed in France. And a curious thing, when he uh, when he died, uh, some of his books, he, he kept only about 200 books out of all his books. And these 200 books were retrieved from his flat in Paris. And afterwards, in an exhibition which was arranged uh, by Sylvia Beach uh, about 1952 in Paris, 
the books were on display and catalogued. And one of the ones he had kept was this edition, which had brought him and Fatsun to Burton, was described as Un livre très aimé de Joyce, which is very true. A view from a different angle of the master, one sharply antiphonal, shall we say, to that of Neil Sheridan's, is provided by another eminent fellow Dubliner, Neil Montgomery. When you rang me the other day and you asked me if I had any special thoughts about Joyce, I said no. But when I put down the phone, I suddenly remembered that I had been thinking about Joyce. I don't normally think about Joyce or take a lot of pleasure in it, but what brought me to the thought of Joyce was a strange thing. I came across, on the barrow, a second-hand translation of The Nest of Gentlefolk. I'd never read it. I bought it and read it and enjoyed it very much. It's full of tenderness and compassion. It's a beautifully written book. And, of course, Turgenev immediately makes you think of his friend and his master in the Nouvelle Athene, Flaubert. And Flaubert naturally makes you think of the man who admired him so much and who, in a sense, can be said to be part of the school of Flaubert, which is Joyce. Now, I'm not going to talk about literature, because I'm only an artisan. I don't know about literature. But I was thinking of these three men, not from the point of view of literature, but from the point of view of their attitude towards women, which is, I'm sure you'll agree is the most important thing in the world. Well, I decided that their attitude towards women would be very much conditioned by the kind of men they are. Now, you have to realise that two of these men were barbarians because Turgenev, despite all the gentleness and the compassion and the top hat and the frock coat and the bits of French, was essentially um, an Asiatic. And, of course, our friend from Ballybock in the, the Clongo's blazer and the sand shoes is the most terrible barbarian I think that ever demanded a pint of nectar on Parnassus. But to go back for a minute to Turgenev, his savagery comes out in only one very small point which I'll emphasize to you. You remember in Tolstoy the way the... Russian nobility always make a point of talking French. It becomes a joke. You have to get it in Dostoevsky too. Now in Turgenev there's a, a wicked lady who lives an adulterous life in Paris, runs out of money, comes back to the village, should be treated very badly, but an old lady there is so charmed by her that she says, My dear, you speak Russian. And suddenly I thought to myself, oh, only come. The evidence of barbarism was completely evidence. But in... Uh, the Nest of Gentlefolk, his attitude towards women is the traditional romantic one. There's a, there's a suggestion of love, of sympathy between the two. It has a, an unhappy ending, but there's a suggestion that it's possible for a man and a woman to understand each other, which you and I know is impossible, and which, of course, is completely contradicted in Emma Bovary, because between poor Emma and the whole world, there's an iron curtain. Now, in the, possibly one of the greatest novels ever written, which is The Sentimental Education, though you have the taste of ashes in your mouth at the end, Nevertheless, there is a suggestion that between Monsieur Moreau and Madame Arnoux, there is a possibility of sympathy. Then you come to me, poor man Joyce, and this is the sad part. Joyce was one of the masher generation, though he didn't dress like them. Joyce belonged to the real time of men's lib in Dublin. I wouldn't suggest that you're as old as I am, but you can remember a time when there was uh, pubs that women weren't allowed into. Joyce was, came from that generation. He knew nothing about women. Those men lived their own life. They lived their own life completely. So that when Joyce came to write a book and had to put a woman into it, all he could do was put in a very fat man called Molly Bloom. Oh. Now, <laughs> yes. you're not accepting any right. right. yes. Now you come down to the Joyce's private world, and you'll say to me, what about the very passionate letters he wrote to Nora? And this is the very funny thing. I haven't read them all. I haven't read the big collection published by Mr. Ellman, but I suggest that if you do read them, you find a very sad thing. This is where you come down to proof. And what do you mean by that? Well, for instance, take the love between Swan and Odette. Uh, there is really no communication there. 
Swan is quite aware of the fact that the Odette he loves doesn't really exist. And this is one of the great agonies of the, the Proustian thing, and I think the same thing happens with Joyce. He was suggesting that Nora didn't exist for... Uh... For Joyce. The, the Nora that Joyce thought existed didn't exist. But, but I'm not... Let me just carry, take that one stage further. It isn't just Nora and Joyce, it's anyone. For instance, supposing... Take a case in which a woman likes a man. The reason that the woman likes a man is something that the man never knows. And if he did know, he'd die, because it would be something very disgraceful, and not, not at all what he thought. So, therefore, what you're really speaking of here is not the relationship between uh, Nora Nikain, Nora Barnacle, and James Joyce. You're talking about the relationship between all men and all women. But coming back to the Joyce relationship, you had another word to say, I think. Well, that she was probably a kind Bokht Oignuk, just like himself. I think that the Joyce relationship was sad because Joyce, who said he never read Proust, must nevertheless towards the end, not when he was a young man, but towards the end, have realised that the woman to whom he wrote these very sensual letters didn't exist. She never read Ulysses. You have just heard Neil Sheridan say that she said to him, why didn't he do some work? There was no communion between them. It was a purely physical relationship for a certain number of years, and then it finished. But however entric the kind, however much a solitary a man or an artist may be, he will have had, like most of us, a father and mother. Uh, now, Neil Sheridan has already touched on Joyce's feeling for his father. Anthony Cronin takes it further. James Joyce was a father-orientated writer. To tell you the truth, I think all writers of any consequence are either father or mother-orientated, and that with a few, a very few, obvious exceptions, the very greatest ones spent a large part of their creative lives trying to lay the ghost of the father. I'll go further and say that in an amazing number of cases, the fathers were circumstantial, worldly failures, fellows who were adjudged unreliable or intemperate or incapable by their contemporaries and often by their families, or else had their eyes fixed on the things of the spirit to such an extent as to be unable to make the necessary obeisances to mammon. This was true to take only the very greatest of the fathers of William Shakespeare, Byron, Dickens, Joyce and Yeats. And here's another thing. In all those cases, the father's name was John, the name of the precursor. William Butler Yeats was, of course, magnificently lucky in his father, that great and still neglected Irishman. But John Yeats could hardly have been called a success on any ordinary worldly level. John Joyce certainly wasn't, and James spent much of his later childhood and adolescence in an atmosphere of increasing squalor. This may well have killed the poet in him, at least the elegant minor lyric poet that he first showed signs of becoming, but that's no harm, for one of his achievements was to abolish the difference between poetry and prose. Everybody remembers the famous description of his father that Stephen Daedalus gives in a portrait of the artist as a young man. A medical student, an oarsman, a tenor, an amateur actor, a shouting politician, a small landlord, a small investor, a drinker, a good fellow, a storyteller, somebody's secretary, something in a distillery, a tax gatherer, a bankrupt, and at present a praiser of his own past. Yet Joyce told Louis Guillet about Ulysses, the humour of Ulysses is his, its people are his friends. Then, using a lapidary Irish phrase, he said, 
The book is his spitten image. After his father's death, he wrote to Harriet Weaver, he was the silliest man I ever knew and yet cruelly shrewd. Hundreds of phrases and scores of characters in my books came from him. I got from him his portraits, a waistcoat, a good tenor voice, an extravagant, licentious disposition, out of which, however, the greater part of any talent I may have springs, but apart from these, something else I cannot define. If an observer thought of my father and myself and my son too physically, he could perhaps define it. John Joyce died on December the 29th, 1931. It is not his death that has crutched me so much as self-accusation, James said, possibly about his failure to return to Ireland in time to see the old man. Two weeks later, however, his daughter-in-law, Helen Joyce, gave birth to a son. Joyce wrote a poem, the first for some years, since, in fact, he had told an acquaintance, I don't intend to write any more poetry unless something happens to my head. Here it is, Eke Poor. Of the dark past a boy is born, With joy and grief my heart is torn. Calm in his cradle the living lies, May love and mercy unclose his eyes. Young life is breathed upon the glass, The world that was not comes to pass. A child is sleeping, an old man gone, O father forsaken, forgive your son. Forgive your son. It seems odd that he should have asked forgiveness, particularly if we read and take at their face value the harsh, bitter, eternally unforgiving judgments of the father's character and conduct in Stanislaw's Joyce's book, My Brother's Keeper. But James was an artist. Stanislaw's was not. James's movement... As in Finnegan's Wake, he was to demonstrate at length, was circular. By the commodious vicus of recirculation, one came back to where one started, to the father and the race. As, according to Stephen Daedalus, the middle-aged William Shakespeare, Grade Auburn, walking in Fetter Lane, had done too. They both remembered, perhaps, that all humanity has a fallen father, Fooster father. And James found another one, Charles Stuart Parnell. It was in the dark, wet winter of Parnell's downfall and death that John Joyce began that long, downward progress in which the instincts of a gentleman, a tenor and a whisky drinker were to betray him into being simply a praiser of his own past. Always afterwards, the two falls, Parnell's and his Parnellite fathers, were one in Joyce's mythology. In Finnegan's Wake, he harmonises them and entwines them with all other falls and fathers. But he could not have come back to the father and the race if he had not found a paraclete, a mediator. This was his own creation, Leopold Bloom, mediator between the son in Trieste and the father in Dublin, the common man who is also the outsider, the failure who is somehow a success, the Dubliner who is also a stranger, himself both orphaned son and bereaved father, Irish and non-Irish, instead of being like Simon Daedalus, all too Irish, but yet someone who knows your old fellow, as Mulligan tells Stephen, and could therefore be Midler the Holy Ghost. There's one foster father every writer needs, or maybe it's a midwife, to bring him into the world of print. Here's Liam Miller, who has himself 
foster-fathered or mid-husbanded more than a few. The Dublin in which James Joyce began to publish his work was the Dublin of the Irish Renaissance. In the late 90s, and in fact in the early years of the present century, there was not much in the way of literary publishing carried on in Dublin. This was all changed, however, in 1903, when Elizabeth Corbett Yeats founded the Donemer Press, which was later to become the Koala Press, with the first publication of a book of her brother's, W.B. Yeats, called In the Seven Woods. Joyce, at this time, was publishing various broadsheets and pamphlets in Dublin. His essay on Mangan, for instance, appeared in May 1902 in the periodical of the university and was later off-printed for the young author. Ulysses, of course, takes place in 1904 in Dublin and in the very first chapter, Joyce has a little go at the foundation of establishment publishing in Dublin at Donemer. In the mouth of Buck Mulligan himself is placed uh, the parody of Koala's work when, after telling an outrageous story, he says very earnestly, that's folk for your book, Haynes. Five lines of text and ten pages of notes about the folk and the fish gods of Dondrom printed by the Weird Sisters in the Year of the Big Wind. Ever since I saw this quotation, I have often wondered whether Joyce was among the people who had sent their early work to the Donemer Press. I have not succeeded in solving that, but I certainly would like to know. It is probable, I think, that the aspiring author might have sent some of his stories, or perhaps a book of poems, to the eight sisters in the hope that his work would be included in their series. In 1905, two years later, a commercial publishing house of distinction was founded in Dublin. This was the house of Monsell and Company, later to become Monsell and Roberts. And it is with George Roberts a northern gentleman who took over the editorial and management functions in the firm that Joyce had a lot of his early uh, publishing adventures. Monsell accepted Dubliners and Joyce returned to Ireland early in 1909 to sign a contract for that book. He was at the time living in Trieste in between that and 1911, while the book was going through a Dublin printing house in preparation, Joyce had come back and had his unsuccessful adventure with the Irish cinema. In 1911, however, uh, Monsell's postponed publication of the book, I don't think they explained the exact reason to the author, but a few months later, in 1912, uh, Joyce came back to Ireland to try and persuade Monsell to publish Dubliners finally, but the printer objected to running the book and broke up the type. 
saw that only a couple of proof copies existed, one of which I examined myself when I met uh, the publisher of the book, George Roberts, then in retirement in London. Joyce tried to get his own back by publishing a broadsheet, which is called Gas from a Burner, this famous diatribe against his publisher, and perhaps there he summarises what he thought of publishers when he said, putting the uh, story into the publisher's mouth, Ladies and gents, you are here assembled to hear why earth and heaven trembled because of the black and sinister arts of an Irish writer in foreign parts. He sent me a book ten years ago. I read it a hundred times or so, backwards and forwards, down and up, through both the ends of a telescope. I printed it all to the very last word, but by the mercy of the Lord the darkness of my mind was rent and I saw the writer's foul intent. Joyce goes on and summarises the uh, Monson list in the same broadsheet. Again, it's Roberts talking. I printed folklore from north and south by Gregory of the Golden Mouth. I printed poets, sad, silly and solemn. I printed Patrick, what do you call him? I printed the great John Millicent Singh who soars above on an angel's wing in the playboy shift that he pinched a swag from Monsell's manager's travelling bag. But I draw the line at that bloody fellow who, that was over here dressed in Austrian yellow, spouting Italian by the hour to O'Leary, Curtis and John Wise Power, and writing of Dublin dirty and dear in a manner no blackamoor printer could bear. However, Joyce's publishing adventures abroad uh, were almost uh, uh, as difficult. He found great difficulty in placing Dubliners in London, and uh, a portrait of the artist was published finally thanks to the generosity of Miss Waver, who was later to become his patron. And when Ulysses was ready to be put to press in the 20s, it was another lady, Sylvia Beach, an American woman who had founded a bookshop in Paris called Shakespeare and Company, that undertook the publication of this great work. All through his life, Joyce was dependent for publication on the generosity of his patrons, and it was not indeed until after his death that the black printed words on the page began to circulate through every college and library in the world. I would like to add one little footnote, and this is that in Ulysses... Uh, the character called Kevin Egan was probably the first veritable printer that Joyce knew very well. He was an Irish Fenian who had gone to Paris where he worked in a newspaper office and with whom, during his first visit to Paris, Joyce had many evenings and in Ulysses one gets really the smell of printer's ink and of the types as they are lifted from the typecase into the printer's stick. From the printer's stick to the printed page, and from thence, the log of the Ulyssian pilgrimage has been imprinted on the very mind and memory of three or four Dublin generations. Thomas Kinsella bears witness to this. I really grew up in part of Ulysses and Dubliners, and Finnegan's Wake for that matter. It was one of the luckiest things about my upbringing that it was in Dublin, so that I was able to live the topography of these books when I came to read them. 
It isn't necessary, of course, to be able to do this to appreciate Joyce's books, but it does give a great added element of intimacy, or so I found, to the experience of reading the books. For instance, the entrance to the school I went to was in a cul-de-sac off the North Circular Road, a gloomy, quiet place with a row of small houses opposite the school and a solid grey building that set off the blind end. Over the years, day after day, as I cycled in and out, the special atmosphere of that place became a part of me without any consciousness on my own part, in the usual way, I suppose, with children. When I read Araby in Dubliners for the first time, the whole essence and actuality of that place, the story opens there, came alive in me again. It was an uncanny, very intimate response, almost physical, literally entrancing, as if some inner part of my own childhood was taking place among the words there in front of me. A place like this takes on uh, more significance from the experience of entering it again for the first time in a work of genius. I have parts of the Keys, for example, in the same kind of double possession, or Lincoln Place and the Irish Agricultural Wholesale Society building, of all unlikely places, in Thomas Street, and those little hills in the park near the magazine, and a hundred nooks and crannies, many of them still standing only in Joyce's words now. The effect is an extension of one's own life, a harder or a more thorough grasp on reality. I find that it's the same with some of the people, particularly the old men and their conversations, Simon Dedalus, Ben Dollard and so on. I had a great number of uncles and aunts, granduncles and aunts I suppose, and friends of our family living about the city. And I remember sitting still in their company and listening and watching their moustaches and waistcoats and their big hands holding glasses or playing cards. It is their voices and gestures that come out at me from Ulysses, absolutely alive and complete. The funeral chapter, when I read it for the first time, restored a whole area of my childhood to me. I remember a line of cabs in Phoenix Street in Inchicore. It must have been in the late 30s. Getting into the creaking carriage, the sounds of the other carriages moving off, everyone's knees jogging as we went over the cobbles and so on. The grown-up's conversation the way it began with a few sententious, ceremonious phrases and the opening out into general gossip. Uh, it must be partly a tribute to Dublin's own stasis that everything should come across those 40 years or so with such completeness. The events and the very phrases merged absolutely perfectly into one another, liter literally entrancing, as I said, sending me into a, a trance of perception. But to come to the art of the work, really it is an outcome more of Joyce's accuracy and even more still of his integrity of imagination, his lack of imaginative clutter, his power to select everything that is significant and to leave out everything that isn't, which is one definition of the ideal arti artistic faculty. I've heard people say he put down only what he heard and saw around him, that he hadn't a creative imagination. An artist's power, I think, doesn't depend on invention, but on his capacity to perceive and select what is significant for life, the perfect, or as near perfect as possible, pseudo-life of his own work. And I believe that is why Stephen, in the portrait, is so electrifying a creation to a young man reading the book for the first time. One's own feverish immaturity reaches out, unimpeded by artistic clutter of any kind, to a totally perceived ideal immaturity and for perhaps the same reason Bloom and the whole structure of Ulysses is complete and satisfactory or as nearly complete as we have a right to expect.
I take very well Thomas Kinsler's point about the effect of the Joycean geography on a Dublin man or on somebody like myself who lived in Dublin in the 1920s and to whom, therefore, a Joycean Dublin streetscape, and things haven't changed very much by the 20s, uh, has, as Hopkins might say, become inscape. Indeed, there are bits of experience which I honestly can no longer swear to being mine at all. They may be superimposed by later reading uh, on the Dublin of my memory from the Dublin of uh, the portrait or of Dubliners or Ulysses itself. Just as one is never quite sure whether a given childhood memory is, is, is just that at all or something that was one is told by one's elders, one should remember. Um, however, as Sean White reminds us, much of the fabric of the Dublin of the first Bloomsday has melted away. So much of all that has had to come down. And even where it hasn't come down... The tower, for example, the starting point, the tower at Sandy Cove, while it is still there, solidly, I think is no longer open at the moment to visitors due to some structural deficiencies and apparently the fact that the money is not there to repair it. I think this is a great pity, considering that the work that was put into this tower to its restoration by the James Joyce Society, particularly John Ryan, Michael Scott and other people who were involved. And I remember that sunlit day on which the Sandy Cove, the tower, was open uh, under the auspices of the James Joyce Society and when we had our last glimpse perhaps of such notable figures as Louis McNeese and Bertie Rogers and the ever-pleasant, ever-happy Sylvia Beach and there were two of Joyce's sisters there that day. I hope it won't be long before funds can be found to have the tower open again. Seven Eccles Street, alas, is no longer with us in its entirety either, the building is now a mere facade, and uh, the door, of course, which was installed in the Bailey some years ago, is again in doubt. We wonder what's going to happen with the Bailey changing hands and changing shape, whether the door will be retained there. Uh, but a great deal still remains of the physical fabric of Dublin, of Bloomsday, St. George's Church stands over Eccle Street, uh, as Bloom remembered it, and Westland Road Church, where Bloom attend Mass, is naturally and strongly still there. Uh, a great number of the sites of Ulysses, as it were, seem to uh, be in the precincts of licensed premises. Some have changed, uh, some have gone entirely. Davy Burns is, I would think, a uh, much different place than the moral pub which Bloom visited, but is still a pleasant hostelry and a pleasant place to rest one's friends on the tramp around the Ulysses sites. Barney Kierlin's, alas, is gone. The building is there. It is now a closed-up store, uh, but uh, it is no longer a hospitable house. The one that uh, remains unchanged, one that... Bloom himself didn't visit, but his friends did, of course, Mulligans of Poole Beg Street. Still remains with its ancient air of pine supporter and sawdust. The Ormond has changed, too, in its physical appearance. 
from the tuneful afternoon when the bronze by gold barmaids looked over the windowsill at the Lord left in his procession. Uh, the National Library is probably not as cosy a place or certainly as idle as a place as it was then, although still one remembers students' discussions on its steps. The statues have gone from the National Museum, the ones that Bloom was so interested in, and newspaper offices nowadays strike me as far less leisurely places um, than they were in uh, Joyce's time. The lying-in hospital, Holly Street, of course, is still there, and Deshil Holly's e Amos, the opening phrase uh, of that particular chapter, the anthology of all the English prose styles. Uh, recently, I came across something that I think might shed a clue on that opening um, I have discussed this with the Irish scholars, and of course Deshill is Deshill, the clockwise movement of mm-hmm. Irish tradition. Opposite to Thuhill. Opposite to Thuhill, yeah. But it is also, I think, a reference to the streets around that area. Denzel Holly's Earl of Clare. It is Denzel Lane, Holly Street, and Clare Street. Like... Um Henry Street, uh, what's this the one there is? Right, the same combination you have there. You have Henry Moore, Earl of Drogheda, Henry Street, Moore Street, Earl mm-hmm. Street, Drogheda Street, which is now O'Connell Street, and even Off Lane, mm-hmm. still there. Sandy Monstrand is probably the saddest of all. I don't see Stephen having his morning walks into eternity along Sandy Monstrand, or Bloom having his evening reflections in the polluted atmosphere that exists now with the large powerhouse chimney to uh, dominate the scene. Night Town, which of course was Monto, um, Joyce borrowed the phrase Night Town from newspaper practice, has gone almost entirely, entirely in its practice and almost in its physical fabric, uh, has been replaced by modern flats. Incidentally, the sub-history of Night Town, the Demolition and change of night town is recorded in a rather peculiar spot and rather fully in a series of articles by Frank Duff in the Legion of Mary paper Maria Legionis, which, as far as I know, is one source that the Joyce scholars yet haven't tapped on this subject. All our contributors so far this evening have been Irishmen, but now here are two writers who have come to live here from Britain. How do they react to Joyce? Wolf Mankiewicz can, of course, meet Ulysses halfway, since he is very consciously Jewish. And indeed, Alan Owen, in spite of his name, is only half Welsh. The other half is Irish. He started early on Joyce. I had read Ulysses as a child, you know, uh, and I say as a child because I remember I was, my mother was told to, um, by the doctor to stop me reading it. When I was 16, he thought that it was probably, con- you know, contributing to my neurasthenia and general sort of pusillanimity. Uh, anyway, um, what it gave me when I first came to Dublin, I somehow had a sense of the um, directions of the city. And even though the city has changed enormously, obviously, from then, I, I, I still found the sort of um, Joycean stations of the cross scattered all around the place, and that I, I knew it was there. You had been there before. Uh, yes, I, indeed. It, gave, I, I, it was a sense of coming home again, from the mm. climate of the book to the actual climate of the town. But of course, that has, has nothing necessarily to do with its literary quality. But uh, it is a 
still considerable guidebook to the emotional climate of Dublin. Mind you, Wolf Mankiewicz, I think you were saying that... Uh, I feel that, yeah. the, that Irish writers, particularly in mm. the American commentators, regard Joyce far too much as the topographer of Dublin. And uh, this, I think, obscures the real importance, the real significance of Ulysses I'm talking about now, which is, I think, that it does terminate the, the uh, 19th century naturalistic novel. It is not possible after Ulysses for a naturalistic novel to be written. Uh, in that book, Joyce develops and utilizes every convention feasible for the novelist and takes it to its logical extreme with uh, such remarkable success um, that it's proved impossible since for anyone to do anything uh, in any of the areas that Joyce touches on in Ulysses, which isn't a faint echo of what he does there. For example, the Circe sequence, the Night Town sequence, has provided the basis for endless... Uh, um, endless novels, novellas, plays, um, subjective and expressionist pieces, but not one of them really has the same impact that the Nighttown sequence has. Um, the other thing that interests me very much about, uh, about Ulysses is the tardy evaluation of importance given to it by the English literary critics. I mean, for example, at Cambridge, where I was a, a student... Uh, and uh, my director of studies was Levis, F.R. Levis, the critic there, the basic assessment of Ulysses that was taken to be the criterion which students should, uh, as it were, tie their, their coats to, was the assessment in a letter of D.H. Lawrence's in which he describes Ulysses as that old olla podrida. Mm. Now, this, this attitude that Ulysses represented... Um, Mix them, gather them up. Well, yes, a cesspool of attitudes, see, literary yeah. attitudes, is one that persisted for a long time well, in English literature. The very circles. point that you, 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 first of all, you made the point that uh, that in Ireland, Ulysses had been reg uh, for too long. Joyce had been regarded exclusively in an Irish sense. Uh, uh, but this is precisely because the Anglo-Saxons tended to. Because Joyce was an Irishman, they tended to discount him. Oh, well, no, I think, I think so. I think this is... Would you? I think so. I think some Anglo-Saxons have been quite Gradually, by the sheer weight of European criticism, the English have had to accept the magnitude of yes, it was because you, you but There has been a tendency yeah. by Anglo-Saxons to reject it because it was the work... I mean, good God knows, even his degree was suspect when he applied for a banking well, that's job. Right, that's right. But it's, it's really that he was a European that I think put the English critics... Yeah. A European well, and exactly, not French. Extremely insular Because if it had been a French, a sterile French intellectual writer, yeah. they would have fallen over uh, backwards in order to be raped by his ideas... But because he was an Irishman who became very much assimilated into the European tradition, and also because that fellow Jolas, mm. uh, Eugene Jolas, mm. gave so much of his life to the, to the um, uh, publicising of In Transition, that magazine, do you remember, was published yes. out of Holland mainly, um, to Finnegan's Wake, uh, which was dismissed in England for many, many years, totally dismissed. Well, that is because of a certain, it does tend to be an enormous insularity amongst the English literati, whereby somebody who is writing in English is suspect if he happens to be an American citizen or if he has... I mean, just jumping for a moment onto Thomas, I mean, if you read, uh, Dylan, uh, the number of uh, English um, 
writers who have dismissed uh, Dylan Thomas. Oh, well, I did right myself in scrutiny. Well, I, th I thought Thomas was terribly overvalued at the time. I, dis I, I disagree with my own assessment. Now. Well, exactly, but this is because there is a, there's a, a tendency amongst uh, people of the English tradition to regard Celts and even Americans as being suspect. Well, no, it wasn't that so much. I mean, about Not Dylan Thomas, there was always such a diuretic flow of, of alcoholic excitement that uh, one tended to be somewhat prejudiced against it because of the over-enthusiasm, which was... Uh, and also right, because it was promoted by a, people like the Sitwells on a massive a scale who, who always made everything rather suspect. Yeah. Well, I think so, too. I think as one came to understand more of the tradition out of which uh, Thomas's writing came... Um, one started to see that it had uh, um, uh, specifically non-Anglo-Saxon references in its tradition. But one wasn't aware of those. One was never well, taught anything about this material. The English language is always regarded as the entire property of the English. And if you happen to be an evangelical, empirical people and you go spreading your language around, you've got to expect the the Sambos, the Paddies, and the Tafts to use your language. Oh, that's absolutely so. And I found the same thing, the same reaction myself. I love the way you agreed with me as if you were disagreeing with me. great. I found this exactly the same English reaction when, when I started to try and develop English as a Yiddish vernacular. Um, the fact is that English, I suppose, has got many, many... Variorum, which are so intensively developed in their own reference that they almost resemble new languages themselves. But I still don't think that this was the reason why Joyce was, in academic circles, discriminated against. I don't think it was his Irishness that did it. It may have been the intensity of his local reference to Dublin. Uh, I think that I, is what makes him completely uh, international. I've had arguments about this, that if you write about a specific place... That is just your background. What you are saying, if it's going to be any of any value, has got to be international. And I think that all Joyce is writing about um, a European city. The fabric of the city happened to be um, the way Dubliners are, but then I think it was the way a lot of other people are, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and particularly Catholic, insofar as uh, the majority of Western Europeans are. Oh, and, yeah. and um, I mean, the, your medieval philosopher would say that you can't have a universal without particulars, that you yeah. abstract your universal from all these particulars. And don't, don't you think the great case also... I, I, I mean, English academics are really very prissy about sensationalist material, material that produces sensationalist reactions, and the famous case about whether Joyce was obscene or not yeah. drew to um, Joyce such a focus of unacademic interest that the English academics ran with their, their skirts um, pulled down tightly over but their e knees. even such spurious academics as H.G. Uh, Wells, you know, who, who um, in that famous sort of, I would call it a diatribe against Joyce, just sort of dismissed the whole of Joyce's endeavour and all his work. It's as if... Um, no, I think it was as if something that was being said to them was being said in a voice they didn't want to hear. Well, also, it, it, came, it came from an area of human experience which they didn't want to go too deeply in. You say Wells, and Wells, mm. of course, hated Joyce. Uh, but it's understandable that he should do, because Wells was the apotheosis of the totally rationalist narrative storyteller. Mm. And uh, that was his position philosophically, sure. and it was his position politically, too. 
And Joyce, on the other hand, drew from the deepest uh, uh, resources of the unconscious, was, was intensely aware of the work yeah. of Freud and Jung, and utilised this material as, in a way that had never been utilised before. Yes, yes. By the way, you did mention there a while ago, you, you talked about your own development of English as a Yiddish vernacular, as a Jewish vernacular. Hey, as a Jewish writer, as a Jewish reader, do you find, how do you, what do you think about the Leopold Bloom central, centrality of Ulysses, you know, which, because I suppose he is, if there is a hero in Ulysses, it is Bloom, not Stephen. Well, I, I've always felt that Bloom was the best drawn um, diaspora, Jewish character, assimilated Jewish character of the diaspora, let's say Europe, um, in modern literature. Um, it's impossible to fault the character of Bloom from the point of view of the specific problems and characteristics of the assimilated Jew. And Bloom is very much the assimilated, and very much one discovers when one lives here the Irish, the Dublin yeah, I was just going to ask assimilated you, he, Jew. Because, uh, you know, I, I don't. I, I, haven't got a sense of distinction between um, Irish Jews, uh, Dublin Jews, and uh, Dublin Protestants and Dublin whatever it might be. Well, there is a, there is but a, I'm sure there is a Jew... Uh, there is. There's an Irish-Jewish yeah. thing. I'm very interested to observe it. Um, the Irish... The Dublin Jews mm. have an intensive Irishness, which is quite different from the pseudo-Englishness of, of a lot of Anglo-Jews, mm. insofar as they appear to be far more integrated, at least into the cultural... Uh, environment, yeah. and have the same kind of reactions to it. Um, I found that quite a lot, and that, of course, is a characteristic of Bloom, who, I mean, in, in, in Ulysses, has an intensive surprise reaction in the moment where there is an anti-Semitic uh, response yeah. to him. Do you remember in the pub? Yes. yes. In that scene. Um, well, he defines himself then, doesn't he, as being Irish? Absolutely. Yes takes up a very a very specific Irish position. And this was very interesting, really, because when you come to think of it, the Jewish population of Ireland today and in his time were almost entirely Ashkenazim. They were, they, and of fairly recent uh, arrival. Yes, very I mean, recent. The previous um, waves of Jewish um, invasion, as it were, of yeah. Ireland, among the Sephardic Jews and so on, this had all died out. I mean, the yeah. <coughs> I, I doubt if there were more than a very small handful of families left who could trace a long history of residence in Ireland. And yet these recently arrived uh, uh, Jews from Eastern Europe and so on seemed, as you say, to have become, uh, to identify... Well, I was discussing this with a, with a couple of, um, of Irish-Jewish uh, characters the other day, Dubliners, yeah. very much so, totally so. And what seemed to emerge was what, what they and their parents who settled in... In, in Dublin, found in common with the small towns of the Pale of Settlement in Russia that they'd come from, northern mm. Russia, was the what, what is called in Yiddish the shtetl quality, the quality of the small town, a small town in which everybody uh, knows everyone, in which the local uh, references and landmarks have a cosmic significance, and in which everything is discoverable. In, uh, in local terms. And, of course, mm. this brings us back to Ulysses. I mean, because Bloom goes through Dublin. He yes. weaves his way yes, through, and Dublin, he knows it's his village. It's mm. his native village, you feel. He knows every corner. He turns as he turns. Well, it that's why, the uh, you know, this is why the mistake can be very easily made about topography. But, I mean, it is travelling during one day a very limited area of a town that you know extremely well, which might be like travelling your own life. 
going through your own world, living your experiences, but this happens to be set in a particular place at a particular time, and somehow it makes it immediately recognisable, even if you had never been to Dublin. Oh, indeed, indeed it does, that, yes. And that way makes it a universal theme. Yes, this micro, for me, anyway. microcosm, macrocosm uh, uh, patterning is, uh, works as it does in, in the work, for example, of uh, Isaac Bashevi Singer. I don't know if you know him. He's certainly the greatest living uh, Jewish writer, and his work is always set and relates to the characters and places of small village towns in the northern Pale of Settlement, and yet his, uh, his work is, is uh, absolutely universal. Oh, I think this is very much true of Ulysses, and every time I read it I get this feeling, not of claustrophobia at all, mind you, it's open-ended, but you are in a large village. Yeah, well, uh, it's interesting how you say about the claustrophobia. I've been living here now ten months without going away from uh, Dublin. And last weekend I went down to uh, to Rathkeel. And there is a... a suddenly I realised as we drove out of Dublin that it can become very claustrophobic and that you step outside and you suddenly can breathe and, and, and you can start to look at things that weren't that important. Uh, and Joyce brings to the whole examination of Ulysses, as it were, a terrific intensity which really, although he wasn't living in Dublin, is a very Dublin frame of mind where, why did he say that? Yes, yes. What did he mean? Yes, yes. Hello, how are you? <laughs> or, you know, the Paddy Campbell's line, are you back or what? <laughs> and there's a terrific uh, sense yes, of this. Very in, that pervades, it pervades the book. So, really, um, one has to remember that although this is a universal book, it is very much a Dublin book. I should like to end Bloom Sunday with a story for bedtime a story which Joyce wrote in 1936 for his grandson, Stephen. You remember the poem he made for him, Ecce Puer. The story is called The Cat and the Devil, and you may cast the devil as you will. It's read by Anthony Cronin. My dear Stevie, I sent you a little cat filled with sweets a few days ago, but perhaps you do not know the story about the cat of Beaugency. Beaugency is a tiny old town on a bank of the Loire, France's longest river. It is also a very wide river, for France at least. At Beaugency it is so wide that if you wanted to cross it from one bank to the other, you would have to take at least 1,000 steps. Long ago, the people of Beaugency, when they wanted to cross it, had to go in a boat, for there was no bridge and they could not make one for themselves or pay anyone else to make one, so what were they to do? The devil, who is always reading the newspapers, heard about this sad state of theirs, so he dressed himself and came to call on the Lord Mayor of Beaugency, who was named Monsieur Alfred Byrne. This Lord Mayor was very fond of dressing himself too. He wore a scarlet robe, and always had a great golden chain round his neck, even when he was fast asleep in bed with his knees in his mouth. The devil told the Lord Mayor what he had read in the newspaper, and said that he could make a bridge for the people of Beaugency, so that they could cross the river as often as they wished. He said he could make as good a bridge as ever was made, and make it in one single night. 
The Lord Mayor asked him how much money he wanted for making such a bridge. No money at all, said the devil. All I ask is that the first person who crosses the bridge shall belong to me. Good, said the Lord Mayor. The night came down. All the people in Beaugency went to bed and slept. The morning came. And when they put their heads out of their windows, they cried, Au Loire, what a fine bridge! For they saw a fine, strong stone bridge thrown across the wide river. All the people ran down to the head of the bridge and looked across it. There was the devil, standing at the other side of the bridge, waiting for the first person who should cross it. But nobody dared to cross it, for fear of the devil. Then there was a sound of bugles. That was a sign for the people to be silent. And the Lord Mayor, Monsieur Alfred Byrne, appeared in his great scarlet robe and wearing his heavy golden chain around his neck. He had a bucket of water in one hand, and under his arm, the other arm, he carried a cat. The devil stopped dancing when he saw him from the other side of the bridge and put up his long spyglass. All the people whispered to one another, and the cat looked up at the Lord Mayor, because in the town of Beaugency it was allowed that a cat could look at a Lord Mayor. When he was tired of looking at the Lord Mayor, because even a cat gets tired of looking at a Lord Mayor, he began to play with the Lord Mayor's heavy golden chain. When the Lord Mayor came to the head of the bridge, every man held his breath and every woman held her tongue. The Lord Mayor put the cat down on the bridge and, quick as a thought, splash, he emptied the whole bucket of water over it. The cat, who was now between the devil and the bucket of water, made up his mind quite as quickly and ran with his ears back across the bridge and into the devil's arms. The devil was as angry as the devil himself. Messieurs les belles gentillons, he cried across the bridge. Vous n'êtes pas des belles gens du tout. Vous n'êtes que des chats. And he said to the cat, Viens ici, mon petit chat. Tu as peur, mon petit chouchat? Tu as froid, mon beau petit chouchat? Viens ici, le diable t'emporte. On va se chauffer tous les deux. And off he went with the cat. And since that time, the people of that town are called les chats de Beaugency. But the bridge is there still, and there are boys walking and riding and playing upon it. I hope you will like this story. Nono. P.S. The devil mostly speaks a language of his own called Bellis Babel, which he makes up himself as he goes along. But when he is very angry, he can speak quite bad French very well, though some who have heard him say that he has a strong Dublin accent.